Hello, and welcome to the July 27th, 2021 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, here to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Ro Myra. Ro was born in Nebraska's rural southwest corner. She knew from an early age that her future lay beyond the cropland and countless miles of empty prairie that surrounded her. Music was her first and most precious escape, a world of infinite possibility right there at her fingertips. And she dove into it, heart and soul. Growing up, Myra lacked formal training, so she invented her own notation system and taught herself piano, spending every free moment in the back bedroom of her grandmother's house, picking out songs by ear. In high school, she began studying classical piano with a teacher who believed in her more than she believed in herself. And by the time she hit 17, she was off to college to further her classical education. University seemed like the only way to get out of my hometown for good, Myra explains, but it still felt like something was missing. Everything I was studying and playing was written by long dead white men, and there was no room for me to improvise or be creative or experience the true fullness of what music had to offer. So, Myra shifted her focus from the arts to academics, eventually earning a master's degree in intercultural youth and family development at Montana State University. It was while pursuing her degree, she met renowned contemporary composer, Dr. Eric Funk, who became not only a teacher, but also a trusted mentor. She was able to return to music in this really profound, life-changing way. Yet, Myra still felt a lingering guilt around her passion for music, like it was a selfish pursuit in a world so full of hardship and suffering. So she continued to dedicate herself to more traditionally altruistic causes. 
She helped launch an education and healthcare nonprofit in Buenos Aires, worked with an international aid group distributing wheelchairs and mobility devices around the world, and taught underprivileged students in impoverished communities through the nonprofit Teach for America. I was having a hard time coming to grips with the idea that I could also have a meaningful impact on people through my songs, Myra explains. But Dr. Funk really opened my eyes. He said to me, you can keep on running away from music if you want to, but you are music and you can't run from yourself. That helped me realize that what the world needs more than anything is people who are fully alive. And I'm never more fully alive than I am when I'm writing music. Taking Funk's advice to heart, Myra began work on her debut recording, at first in Denver and then in Nashville, where she now resides full time. She produced the entire collection herself, fleshing out her vision of a record as raw and windswept as the fields of Nebraska, with a diverse cast of players, including multi-instrumentalist Joshua Grange of Lucinda Williams and Cheryl Crow, Elephant Revival drummer Darren Garvey, bassist Vanessa McGowan of Brandy Clark, and fellow singer-songwriter Phoebe Hunt, among others. Nowhere in Nebraska, Myra's extraordinary debut is more than just a musical homecoming, though. Recorded over the last few years in Denver, Nashville, and Austin, the album is a com complex reckoning with the past, a nuanced, literate re-examination of small-town life in the shadow of heartbreak, self-destruction, and second chances. While the arrangements here are broad and sweeping, Myra's storytelling is simply focused and firmly rooted, offering up rich, detailed character studies with keen insight and deep empathy. She writes with a novelist's eye, isolating moments and emotions with surgical precision and she sings with a weathered grace that makes the hard truths go down easy. The result is a warm embrace of an album all about memory and forgiveness, growth and pain, freedom and fate, a collection that calls to mind everything from Lucinda Williams to Bruce Springsteen to Laurie McKenna to Brandy Carlisle to Sheryl Crow as it makes peace with the past to inhabit the present more fully. This album was born out of an intention to become more of an observer in my daily life, Myra explains. I wanted to go back to this childlike state, to this honest, authentic space where I could try to understand the people and the places that shape me and maybe come to a better understanding of myself in the process. I wanted people to be able to listen to this record and feel what it's like to stand in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska on a hot summer day, to feel the heat just radiating off the wheat fields, Myra explains. I wanted it to sound like what growing up there felt like. Roe Myra may have left home, but home, it seems, never left her. In my show notes, I've included a link so that you may pre-order Roe Myra's debut recording, Nowhere, Nebraska, which is due to come out on August 6th. 
It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ro Myra. Right. Hello, Ro. Hello, Craig. Good morning. It, it, hello. Well, it's morning for you still, afternoon for me, but that's okay. I appreciate the sentiment. It's really great to talk to you, and I'm so very happy to have you as a guest uh, on my uh, podcast. And I want to just dive right in, and uh, let's get right to talking about your new album, your debut album, Nowhere, Nebraska, which is going to be released on August 6th, which is only about a week away from, from uh, now, uh, when this uh, goes public. Uh, the new album is a collection of uh, seven original songs, and four of which you have already released as singles. You produced the album yourself, which is, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and I'm curious, because there's a lot of sounds on the album that I'm intrigued by in how um, they enhance the lyrics, okay? When I taught music appreciation, that was the main gist of, you know, when I talked about opera or about German leader was the idea that the music enhanced the message, the musical, or I mean, the emotional content and, and the lyrics. So when you were recording your album, did you make specific requests for the sounds the other musicians on the recording contributed or request input from any of the other musicians? Oh yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, I think as a producer, it's important to have a sound vision um, while still leaving space. Um, and, you know, it's important as musicians that we have uh, space for a conversation and I was so fortunate to be able to work with so many incredibly talented musicians and sound engineers. Um, and this album would not have been possible without them, right? And so the outcome that you're hearing is, it's both. It's both me having a vision as a producer, but also the musicians having space to express themselves creatively and, um, you know, say what they want to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, well, so then was this a completely top-down effort or would you feel comfortable saying that, that it was a collaborative, collaborative effort under your direction? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just from knowing the backstory of almost any record, you would have to say that any record is a collaborative effort, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, anything that ends up turning out really well, it's, it's never a top-down sort of effort. It's, there is, um, you know, everyone is on an equal playing field, I think, and mm -hmm. um, has their voice being heard and um, they have something to bring to the table. And so um, I definitely have to give a big shout out to Joshua Grange and Patrick Hertzfeld during the pandemic, um, these two who were just really helping me um, to carry the record over the finish line. And, um, you know, just a lot of collaborative effort was made. And, um, uh, you know, originally I hired Grange just for pedal steel. because I was encouraged to hire him like five years ago. I finally just, you know, got around to it. And <laughs> he ended up playing several different instruments on the album. And 
just really, really well. You know, it's it's not that he is just proficient in these instruments. He has something really incredible to say with each instrument. And um, it's probably why, you know, he's gotten to play with, uh, you know, and still plays with Lucinda Williams. He was playing with Cheryl Crow for the longest time and uh, Connor Oberst, Manny Moore, you know, <laughs> musicians like that. It, you know, they, they have something to bring to the table. And so I just, I was very honored to have so many incredible, uh, so many incredible people on my team. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it, it, you know, we sometimes underestimate the value of, of the side people. And oh. uh, last week, week before last, I have a personal friend of mine who is a studio musician in Los Angeles who has played on, oh my I can't remember how many Grammy nominated and Grammy winning albums as a, you know, a sideman. Uh, he's, and he's recorded all kinds of stuff. He did an album with the Dixie Chicks or the Chicks they're now called. Uh, and he's also done a lot with uh, one of the, a huge star, Latin star in uh, uh, Central and South America. And uh, he even told me a great story about a Nigerian reggae performer. Anyway, my point is what Terry said when I asked him about, you know, do you have any tips for any young aspiring musicians who might want to do what you do? And he says, the number one thing you have to remember is your job in a recording studio when you go in to play with someone is make them sound better than <laughs> they think they can sound by yeah. playing, playing what you do to enhance whatever they bring into the recording session. So oh, yeah. it sounds like you had a very uh, similar type experience. Did any uh, of this? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, yeah. that's all right. Uh, did any of the songs that you wrote turn out differently after being in the studio than you had conceived them going in? And if so, which ones and how so? Yeah, uh, all the songs stayed the same lyrically and the chord structure was all the same. Um, but I do remember the day that we went in to record Jump Into the Water. It was at my friend Patrick Hertzfeld's studio outside of Austin, Texas. And um, <clears throat> I had originally written that song in 4-4 time, but I was just really craving just hearing some sort of dirty shuffle uh, you know, sort of uh, six, eight beat drum on my album. And I, I was like, I don't know where I'm going to fit this in, but I need something like that. And um, I thought about it and I was like, actually, that would be perfect for the song. So I just changed the meter of the song uh, mm -hmm. right before we went into the studio. And I'm really glad I did. Uh, you know, just kind of had Patrick play the drums on it. And I just kind of told him what I wanted for that drum beat and then just we sort of built around that uh, for the and um, yeah I think it's always a surprise you know when when you have so many collaborators how the songs end up turning out I I think they turn out better than I could have imagined just because of everyone on my team and um, you know uh, they just it just it was like they added more life to it than was originally there um so yeah i i think that 
you know, some, as far as the songs are concerned, lyrically and uh, chord structure remain the same, but yeah, there was so much more room for it to come to life, you know, with that collaborative effort. Well, you know, you know, they say that music is the most plastic of the arts mm. because, because, you know, like with a, a sculpture or a painting, once it's finished, it's done and it goes and sits in the gallery, right? Or goes and hangs on somebody's wall who purchases it. But music, and of course you know this too from live performing. In yeah. a live performance, you don't do everything exactly the same way uh, you know, that you did before, unless you're just mouthing to uh, you know, a, a recording, you know? Right. Uh, and um, so, that's always really kind of a great thing. The other thing is, and we all understand as musicians, is there's a lot of things that happen in between the notes, so to speak, that aren't yeah. written in the music. But as musicians, we, we take that as a guide. Uh, I, I used to describe to my uh, students in uh, my lecture classes that uh, a musical score is sort of like a recipe for a chocolate cake. <laughs> okay. In other words, let's say we're looking at a Beethoven string quartet and Beethoven had a particular recipe for his, the kind of chocolate cake he wanted to make. But as we're making the chocolate cake, according to Beethoven's recipe, we might want to change it up just a little bit. Maybe not enough to where it isn't a chocolate cake anymore, but it is something that is still somewhat uniquely our own. And I, I said, that's really kind of how music happens because things are open to interpretation and uh, why great conductors uh, become great conductors of symphony orchestras because they bring a new vision or a new uh, uh, sort of life to music that's been around for hundreds of years. Yes. But I don't think that's any different with contemporary music, especially in a live performance. Yes. There has to be room for spontaneity. Yeah, yeah. I had a professor one time who said that really a recording is nothing more than just freezing in time mm -hmm. a particular way that you did that particular tune on that particular day with that particular take, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it, 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 there is a lot of variability and that's what keeps our interest, I think. Yeah, so, I mean. Uh, oh, go ahead. Even Chopin allowed his students to sort of rewrite the works that he had them study. So he allowed them to add and modulate and, and change what was there um, oh. and almost make it their own. And I think that, um, you know, any good musician or great collaborator will allow people to do the same, you know, with their works. Well, you know, and even you bring up Chopin, there's a beautiful example because he's the one that brought to us Tempo Rubato which was an interpretive uh, direction. It wasn't a literal, it was right. feel free to drag a little bit with the right hand, but make sure you catch up by the next bar, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, there's some great things. From an aesthetic standpoint, I always bring this up with singer songwriters because I'm curious what they're thinking. You know, the ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy and drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. One could experience the emotional pain of what they were witnessing on stage without having to bear the actual pain of what was being viewed. 
Is the aesthetic purpose of your songs to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners? Or are you, as some other songwriters have done, simply serving as an observer of human relationships and making personal commentary? I think that's a great question. You know, I think about my own self and and what I need for a good emotional cleanse. And I think either I turn on Jeff Buckley's like lover, you should have come over for a good emotional cleanse or I write a song or, you know, I take a long hike out in the mountains. Um, I'm currently here in Missoula, Montana. Um, So I, you know, my songs are really emotional catharsis for me. And um, I would say about three fourths of the songs I've written in my body of work would be, um, you know, just for that emotional cleansing experience for myself personally. And then one third is more of a character study and, and in me trying to become a better observer um, of how there's patterns in people's behaviors and, and cycles are repeated within human history and human behavior as a whole, as a collective. Um, but, you know, if my songs were to serve as emotional catharsis for other people, I mean, that would really <laughs> be a rewarding experience for me, you know, that it's, that it's not just um, cleansing for me, but it would be cleansing for maybe us as the collective itself, because that's really what it's about. We're not just individuals. We are a collective, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's two things that I, I, I would echo exactly what you're saying. Uh, one is that uh, when I taught a mu- music appreciation, I uh, would play a, a, a to a song by uh, the 14th century composer, uh, you may do, uh, no, no, it was Machot. And it was about lost love. Mm. I would follow that up immediately with Hank Williams, there's a tear in your in my beer. And I would tell the students, I would say now, and they would laugh because they think they thought it was funny that I would go from this piece of music from the Middle Ages, right? To, you know, this twangy Hank Williams song. And I said, but when you look at the words, human emotion has not changed in, you know, 500 years. People still get upset about, relationships when they break down they did in the 14th century and they certainly did in the 20th century and they will continue in the 21st century yes yes we're all looking for connection and and that's part of why i do music as well i'm I'm looking to connect with others Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and i think that that's you know that's what uh you might be too young to remember American Bandstand, but I remember growing up with it when it was, you know, on Saturday mornings with Dick Clark and he would, he would go around, they'd play the latest, you know, hit song. And he would ask uh, the young people there in the audience. So uh, what do you think? You know? And so you'd always have one kid trying to be very intellectual and he'd say, well, Dick, uh, it's got a catchy tune, but you can't really dance to it. So I give it a six. And so, you know, sometimes music 
uh, appeals strictly from a visceral standpoint. In other words, it makes you tap your foot, snap your fingers, wants you to shake your booty, whatever. But then there's that music that uh, appeals also to our cognitive or intellectual side. Uh, as I would tell students, the purpose of art is to make you just stop and think. To mm. go, what in the heck is this? What is going on? What is the artist trying to say to me? What was in the subconscious of that artist? You know, or what kind of mood were they in when they composed that piece of music? And I think that transfers and translates as well. I get that out of your music. I listened mm. to your, I, I first, you know, I was sent an advanced copy of the new of the new album. I listened to the songs numerous times. I did not read any of the commentary about what they were about, because I know you include that you know, on your webpage, I believe. But I, uh, because I wanted to make up my own mind, well, what does this sound like? What is it about? What is it, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, that's always what it intrigues me. Topically, your music seems to deal a lot with reconciliation. Uh, and when I read the title of your, your new album, I, I thought, okay, this could be taken as a pejorative position about your origins. Mm. In other words, I'm from nowhere. Or perhaps you are from somewhere that most people would consider to be nowhere, yet it still has special meaning to you. So what do you feel you're re reconciling through the title of your album and some of the songs on the album? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna think about that for a second. That's quite all right. <laughs> We could break for a commercial, but I don't have any. So you go ahead. We'll just you sponsors think. yet? What's that? <laughs> so did you got sponsors yet? No, don't want any. <laughs> I don't want any good answer. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorite authors, her name is Anne Lamott. She wrote uh, Bird by Bird. And in that book, she is encouraging writers like myself to, as an exercise, just go back to our earliest memories and start writing in chronological order. And so really that's what I was on a quest to do. I was on a quest to just write from my earliest memory in order. And, you know, my origin is Nebraska, a tiny little town just right on the border of Colorado and Wyoming. And there's really nothing there. And, you know, a lot of times the joke is that it's just nowhere in Nebraska. Um, Especially when people ask where I'm from, <laughs> like, oh, you're you're never gonna know where it's at. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to sort of go in order of like my earliest memory and and explore that and explore where I come from, and um, you know, I in this exercise, I, I I started to get more into Seneca the Younger as well while I was doing this and. And one of my favorite quotes from him is, is something like, you know, we suffer more in imagination than we do in actual reality. And so I think by doing this exercise and writing in chronological order, um, I was able to uh, sort of explore my past because I think, and 
I think a lot of our suffering comes from sort of ruminating on the past. And that's just in our imagination now, right? We're, we're here, we're fully present. And so I think in writing this album, um, you've asked a really good question. I think it's, it's really just uh, creating some characters and allowing them to uh, sort of reconcile their past with their present. And I think through that exercise, just becoming more whole, you know, uh, that's, that's the internal work we all get to do as humans. We get to um, recognize that a lot of our suffering at this current moment in the 21st century, for most of us, is just in our imagination. It's just something in the past. And by reconciling our past with our present, you know, I think it can help us to just be more present as people. And, and, and that's what I really want for my life. I just, I want to be more present in every moment. Hmm. Now that's caused me to think of another question to ask you. It, <laughs> it wasn't on the, on the list I've submitted. So if you don't want to answer it, that's okay. But you've really, you've really got my curiosity and got me thinking. So right. would you consider your new album, Nowhere Nebraska, to be more historical fiction or mm. an autobiography? You know, I think it's a combination of both. You know, I mm. think um, I, I think that, uh, you know, you can sort of explore something that is autobiography you know, something that has happened to oneself or to yourself, in this case to myself, but you can create characters um, that are representing that. And, and, and in that, um, you can explore it maybe to a, an easier depth, right? Um, it's easier to get to that depth because it's, it becomes less personal and it's more um, you exploring it through the through the avenue of a newly formed character, if that makes sense. Sure, sure it does. So I think it, it, it's probably both, you know, there, there are definitely fictitious pieces to it, and but there are also pieces that are very personal in the mm -hmm. songs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think we all have to start, even if we're creating fiction, we still start from our personal experience. I mean, you know, like Jack London, when he wrote Call of the Wild, okay, it's a work of fiction, but he first went to Alaska and, <laughs> and went through a lot of what, you know, he wrote about in his book, or uh, uh, I think about um, Jack Kerouac, uh, another author who, you know, revolutionized American literature because his novels aren't really about anything other than his observations and kind of stories about people he meets and so on as he's traveling across America. And of course, he uses fictionalized names to uh, uh, refer to, you know, actual people and so forth. But, but uh, you know, I think, um, you know, it's interesting. It's like my wife and I right now, we're watching on Netflix a, uh, a, a show called The Lost Kingdom which is about uh, uh, Northumbria in the ninth century. Now it's based on some 
historical fiction novels. But uh, of course, there's always a certain amount of actual history that's there that, of course, I next to music history is one of my favorite subjects. So that's that's really good. But something else you said that I, I, I want to amplify, I think is so true, is about how we do create our own misery uh, a lot of times. And my father who's uh, no longer with us, but during his life, he was a psychologist. Mm. And his license plate on his car was Halo Fixer, H-A-L-O-F-X-R. Because he felt like that's what he did for people is he helped them kind of take a look at their past things from, a more, you know, their, their present day objective self and go, see, you don't really have to be, you know, kicking yourself for that. Yeah. which is we, we do that all the time anyway yes. you also write music in the classical art music tradition what works of note have you composed i don't know if they're of note but <laughs> well okay of note to you at least <laughs> um well uh you know, I studied Spanish in undergrad and graduate school as well. And I lived abroad in Buenos Aires. So some of the titles of my works are in Spanish. And mm. one of my favorites, one of my personal favorites um, that I've written is called uh, Fin del Otoño, which means like the end of the fall. And um, in this work, it's a um, full string orchestra um but it also has a choir that's singing into the chamber of a grand piano oh sure and then that's being mic'd and sort of panned around like seven speakers around the auditorium and or the theater and uh it also has a percussionist that's playing about nine different drums as well and um you know there's just to me there's nothing more freeing and liberating than sitting in the audience and hearing this piece that's only been in your head and now it's being played in front of people and and it's alive it's it becomes this reality and and um as the composer you can just kind of sit back and soak it all in you know mm -hmm. well it's no longer just ink on paper it it really yeah. has come to life or in this case, you know, in modern day um, composing, it's like, it's no longer those hideous MIDI sounds. Yes, there you <laughs> go. You're, you're hearing in finale or whatever you end up composing in Sibelius. Sure. Yeah, it's like, it's it's real and it's alive and, you know, uh, it's, yeah, it's human now instead yeah. of computer. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know then, how has your writing or your work in writing art music informed your songwriting in a more quote unquote popular vein? Um, yeah, I, I think that it's informed it in such ways that I just, it's helped me to really think about how a piece breathes and what, how, how a song takes up different frequency spaces, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, 
when I'm when I'm composing an, a, a piece for for orchestra, like I'm often like changing up the meters pretty rapidly, you know, just like um, five, four time, three, four time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make the piece as human as possible. And, and one way to do that is by changing up the time signature. Um, you don't hear that a lot in popular music, but you mm -hmm. will hear in my song half the time, you'll hear how it goes from four, four to nine, uh, to nine four and then back to four four so there's meters of five four mixed in with four four and mm. alternate and and so in that way I was I, that's you know you'll kind of hear that influence of me being a classical composer and then and sort of like taking how I change meters in that world into this world but you know it's yeah it's happening less so because it's uh I don't know. It just didn't seem to suit um, this, all the songs in this case, but I felt like in half the time it was, it was a good way to sort of create that human feeling of, um, of, uh, of not being consistent, if that makes sense. Like um, kind of oh, throwing. <laughs> I kind of hear, I kind of think I, I know where you're coming from. I'll, I'll say it, then you can either agree or disagree, but you're, you're writing for different audiences for one thing. I mean, the yeah. audience to come and hear the string orchestra with the choir and the percussionist that may be the same audience you would have for your new, you know, uh, recording the type, the, the music you have on there, but it may not necessarily be the other way around. Um, you know, popular music is popular, not because it's of low quality, but rather because it's, it's more accessible to, um, uh, um, a broader range of people. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I it's like my students, when I taught a music, music appreciate, I'd play them an, an instrumental piece. What do you think the first question they would ask me? Dr. Hurst, what does it mean? It doesn't have any words. Because that's what they're used to, right? Is listening to music that has lyrics and, and their background mostly listening to popular music. And so my answer to that would always be, well, think of it this way. As you listen to the music, Imagine that it's the soundtrack for the movie in your head. So when you listen to that music, what movie do you see? And that's yes. what it means. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a recording of that string orchestra piece by chance? Or is it on YouTube or anything like that? <laughs> I'm actually, that is a, a project that I, I'm working on right now. Because okay. we did recording um, and... I don't know where that's at. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I would love to get an, an actual recording uh, created um, for real this time. <laughs> well, sure. But I mean, to me, it just sounds, it sounds really interesting because I, I you know, I, I, I thirst for new and different sounds. And that idea of a combination of string orchestra, I bet the voices sound really ethereal, kind of, kind of as the, the sympathetic vibrations of the strings and the piano respond. I mean, I can almost guess 
what I might hear, but of course I won't know until I really hear your piece, you know, because and it, it seems to me like it'd really be cool. And uh, so I look forward to the day when it's, when it's recorded. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All You're right. Serial voices because we, with the grand piano, we actually have a weight that's on the sustain pedal. So that, right, that's going to cause the, um, the voices to travel in a, mm -hmm. in a real way. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a piece I used to teach. It was by George Crumb called the ancient voices of children oh. and it used a some kind of an effect like that and uh uh and uh anyway i i, I don't want to get started i could go on forever talking about modern music of all kinds because <laughs> i love all kinds of music uh, so so let's get our I, what I want to do then is I want to kind of refocus and get back to uh, you and the music on, uh, you know, that you're making on your new album. And I'm going to ask you, who are who are your models for your vocal style and quality? Oh, man, that's so interesting that you asked that, because I honestly, I don't think I've ever had one. Um, mm -hmm. My biggest goal was really just to find my own authentic voice. And um, I, I found it very hard to do that growing up because the only training that was really available to me was classical training. And for my ear, I just felt like that had too much vibrato and I didn't really enjoy that style or how it sounded. Mm -hmm. And I switched to jazz, but then I felt that had too many parameters as well. and and that my voice was ending, it was ending up sounding similar to other people's voices. And I didn't really enjoy that either because I know I have my own voice. And so I, I ended up just trying to teach myself voice because I didn't want to be influenced by any sort of classical or jazz training. And I was very interested in finding, okay, like what does my voice sound like? How, do, how does it sound like me? How, how do I make this authentic as possible? Um, and so in, in taking that route, I think I was able to actually find my own voice instead of, you know, sort of trying to emulate someone else's. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a fair answer because, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're, um, you have to uh, strive for originality in in uh you know if there's not if you're not surrounded by uh, a lot of different uh ideas and, and other people but uh you certainly will have would have listened to uh music of a lot of other uh songwriters and so yeah. who are some songwriters that you admire and perhaps emulate oh man there's so many all right you know. give, just give me your top three. <laughs> oh, only top three. Oh gosh <laughs> that's awesome. you know that's an unfair question ro you know why because i get that all the time <laughs> say, who's your favorite composer craig and i'll say well it depends you know <laughs> if if you're talking about from the 18th century it is you know if it's 19th it's so and so if it's late 19th it's so and so if it's 20th you know because you know I, as, as I, 
I keep referring back to my experience as a teacher. I used to tell my students, I says, music is like going to the ice, the ice cream store. And not yeah. one flavor is necessarily any better than another. And you should try and dig them all. Oh, yeah. But is there anyone that stands out in your mind that you think of that when you heard their songs, you went, oh, wow, that's cool. I want to try and write like that. Oh, I want to try and write like that. Oh, or I man. wish I could write a song like that or something. Ooh. Oh, man. <laughs> just, there's so many. Um, well, I mean, you know, my very uh, first uh, look at like a writers, right, was I just fell in love with composers from the Romantic period. And so okay. like, I just love like Mendelssohn and Brahms and Tchaikovsky and, and Chopin, right? And I just uh, loved uh, just how captivating the melody lines were and that, and it, and it took me, to another place right and um from there i think uh <laughs> honestly as a kid like i just loved nirvana like i was yeah. obsessed with kurt cobain's writing and um i you know and as i've, I've gotten older I, i've expanded <laughs> a lot more since then as a listener as, and as a human and um, I say, just you know, currently I I'm listening to like the songs of Laurie McKenna, and I'm thinking, wow, she's just such a powerful writer. And I've always loved Carol King, you know, she's just like someone who I would love to be more like. <laughs> yeah, she makes the earth move. And you know, Joni <laughs> uh, Mitchell and. Um, I love Lucinda Williams and her writing. Um, just, I, I don't know. There's just such a ex expansive list. I, I love Elliot Smith. Um, and if there's anyone I would want to emulate vocally, um, recording style wise, it would be him, right? How he doubled his vocals. And um, I really tried to do that with uh, more than just okay on this album. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a few, just to name a few, sure. you know, loving the music of, um, John, I love the Oklahoma boys, you know, like, uh, John Moreland, John Fulbright. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just, I don't know. And there's so, so many in Nashville and so many in Austin locally that you might only know about because you're a local and they're just mm -hmm. like mind blowing talent yeah. <laughs> so, so list off from there too but yeah that's just yeah. the name of it, it's like i said it's an unfair question but i usually always ask it anyway because i'm curious as to how people are going to respond but, yeah you know you're absolutely right there is no uh debating the uh the melodic content of tchaikovsky's music i mean you <laughs> think of you think of some of the melodies from his symphonies or I think Brahms is the same way. Uh, Brahms. And, uh, uh, you know, and then of course, if you want to get into the, the whole thing of Schubert and, and Lieder and Schumann's Lieder. And uh, I mean, uh, I'm right there with you. My wife is a classically trained singer. 
Wow. But she's not a, she would say that she's not an operatic singer. That's not her ilk, but she's really more of an art song singer. And she just sings uh, uh, beautiful, uh, re, you know, renditions of, uh, of course, art songs. And uh, uh, so I, I know of what you speak, I think. <laughs> it's, it's hard but I would say you've got an excellent foundation and I as well as the other songwriters you mentioned and of course Austin oh my gosh see I lived in Texas for 15 years okay <laughs> now I was in Denton which is north of uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area but I was very aware of South by Southwest and the Kerrville yeah. Folk Festival and and the music scene in and around Austin because the local public uh, radio station used to broadcast live from the Kerrville Folk Festival every year. So I, you know, I heard great uh, 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 singer songwriters that were, you know, from the, the Southwest. And uh, so, yeah, there's excellent music everywhere. If you just look for it. Oh, anyway, so I'm curious <laughs> to know about your creative process. What inspires you when you write? What inspires me when I write? Oh, let me, give me, let me give you some food for thought. Do you start with a lyric? Do you start with a melodic idea? A rhythmic idea? A set of chord changes? Or do you per attempt just to reflect a particular mood or other cognitive imagery? Oh, man. Um, Krista did warn you that I'm a university professor and would ask these technical questions, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's that's it's a great question, and you know, it it definitely varies every time. Um, uh, there's a musician I know, uh, Bridget Carney. She's a bass player for Lake Street Dive, and I've heard her compare songwriting to you know going fishing, and I, and it's funny because I I feel the exact same way. I I grew up going fishing with my dad, and I just feel like songwriting is one of those processes where you just have to show up and so if you show up you make the time for it every day and for me I like to invite the muse if you will I, I feel like it's and I like to allow myself to get in this childlike state where there's no judgment um, there's just a lot of space for play a lot of space for exploration and just having fun with it and, and, you know, zero pressure for any sort of outcome. And in that way, you know, eventually you're going to write, uh, you know, uh, three bad songs and then maybe one good song, <laughs> but, um, you know, the process is different every time. And, and, um, you know, since I've gone to, uh, I, I've, gone to this like songwriters retreat called Crooked Crow. My friend Jay Wagner, he puts it on um, every fall minus the pandemic, uh, just in this little town, just on the border of Mexico and Texas. And Jay Wagner is an incredible songwriter himself. You know, he's um, co-written songs with Gregory Allen Isaacoff, I think, the record that he co helped co-write called Evening Machines was nominated for a Grammy not too long ago. Um, and so this, this retreat is full of great songwriters and from Jay Wagner and other songwriters, I just learned a lot of different 
um, methodologies for writing. And one of those, you know, that I discovered through that was uh, just William Burroughs cut up method. Mm -hmm. And I did not know that also, you know, Kurt Cobain was using this method. I did not know that David Bowie was using this method. Um, and, you know, Kurt Cobain would go to Lawrence, Kansas and hang out with Burroughs. So like had a relationship and, um, you know, and so I honestly, like my, my process looks different every time, but I'll tell you, one of my favorite ways to write now is I just go to the library and I get a bunch of free books from the free book bin. Mm -hmm. I get scissors and my glue stick and I just cut these books up and that's how I write a song. Wow. That is interesting. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and, and it's, it, I'm fascinated every time I an answer I get, because of course everybody's different. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, I interviewed, uh, oh, let's see, it's been many, many weeks ago. Uh, another singer songwriter from Nebraska. She's from Utica, Nebraska. What's her name? Hope Dunbar. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know Hope? Yeah. Well, Hope was on, was on my show, uh, back in April, I think. Oh, cool. She told me that her sister was also a songwriter and that they made themselves write one new song every week. And then they would send them to each other for critique. Oh, it, was, it was as an, you know, and a forced exercise. Yes. You know, yeah. and then, and then there's a, a, a big band a composer ranger in New York city uh, by name of, uh, Alan Ferber. And when I was asking him about his creative process, he says, when I get a block, creative block, I said, I sit down and purposely write the worst piece of music I can think of to write. <laughs> because that's what gets the juices flowing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the, the one of the more interesting ones, in, in some ways, is a singer songwriter, a friend of mine here in the Milwaukee area, Barb Stefan is her name, Barbara Stefan is her name. And Barbara says that she always gets her inspiration while she's vacuuming. So if she's got a block and she wants to write a song, she starts to vacuum. And for oh some reason that, that gets, gets the, the gray matter stirred up and going. Wow. So everybody's different. And you cutting up words out of books and putting, putting them together. And uh, uh, kind of reminds Aubrey Logan, who's a jazz uh, uh, trombonist and singer, uh, that I interviewed uh, a couple of months ago. She said, I, I said, what's the inspiration for your, your songs that you write, your original? She says, just catch phrases. And so I referred her to a, a, a writer by the name of Dr. Marty Growth. I subscribe to his email and every week I get, he, he's a collector of quotes, you know, <laughs> catchphrases and quotes. And, uh, and so anyway, but I, that's really interesting to hear that, that, that you know, uh, you don't know when your muse is going to spew, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I and, think. Yeah. And, and it's going to come to you in many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think for me, you know, uh, I'm not sure a vacuum would work, but... <laughs> just like getting out in the mountains, um, being barefoot 
and just walking along the river, you know, up the path. And just, I think that sort of walking meditation really opens me up to be able to be fully present and dive into something with the muse. And it, it's, uh, yeah, probably one of the most life-giving things I do every day. So, yeah, there's something I remember, this is what you're referring to. I remember reading about or seeing a blurb about mindful walking or mindful hiking where um, as you're out in nature you're mindful make you become very mindful of your surroundings and really soak up and soak in everything that's around you um i'm not even sure if i've got the correct uh title but that's uh, that sounds kind of like a, a great thing to do i know for <laughs> me my best ideas always come at the wrong time it's usually <laughs> while it's usually while i'm in the shower yeah. But anyway, well, back to your album. Um, to my ears, your album represents a real variety of different styles. Uh, half the time, even including a 9-4 bar, which I admit I missed in my initial listening, I'll go back and listen for it now, really kind of sounds to me like a straight ahead rock tune mm. with the style of the bass and the drum beats and the, and the electric guitar inflections. And I contrast that with with uh, a half the time with Mama, which to my ear has more of a distinct country sort of sound uh, with the guitar, more minimalist bass line, inclusion of electric guitar. So mm -hmm. rock and roll's often been associated with rebellion and independence fueled by uh, teenage angst. But I have a feeling that's not really what half the time is about. What is half the time about and why did you choose maybe a more rock oriented sound for the song? Oh man, well, just if I can answer what you were, if I can just sort of respond to what you were talking about with the different sounds and, you know, the more rock or the more country, um, you know, uh, my friend Jerry Vandiver, he's a platinum award winning songwriter for Tim McGraw. And he always encouraged me ever since I moved to Nashville and. 2015 um he was one of the first friends i made and he said you know whatever you do you have to make sure it serves the song and that was the best piece of advice that i've i've heard in a long time <laughs> and um you know in this case like i just wanted to serve the songs in every situation so it didn't matter to me like what sort of genre would would come out. It just, it mattered to me that the song was served and it would be presented in its most authentic form. Um, but to answer your question about what half the time is about, you know, the chorus is, is give me all your love, give me, give me all your love half the time. It's just, this character is clearly looking for someone to be more present uh, and and maybe more consistent, right? And in the verses you hear the character sort of waiting for this person to, to show up. And, and then as the pre-chorus unfolds, you're hearing that, oh, wow, okay. Like, why is this person not fully present? Well, it sounds like they have an addiction, right? And, and in this case, addiction to alcohol. Um, and so really that's, um, that's kind of what's, I don't ever like, 
I don't like to talk too much about what things are specifically about because I like to, sure. I do like to leave the song open for, you know, like what we were talking about earlier, which is like people having their own sort of emotional catharsis, right? And it's it, and and the music taking on their own meaning for that serves their purpose, right? Um, but yeah. I guess if I could leave it just a little open. Um. No, it's no. I think that's no. I I I don't I don't you know it, I'm not asking for a complete explication of, of of your thoughts. I'm just I'm just kind of curious uh, about about the song itself. And you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, uh, Claudio Monteverdi said back in you know the 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 1600s that. Uh, uh, music is the mistress to the drama or to the words. And mm. it, it sounds like you're saying much the same thing, regardless of the style of music. And of course, Baroque composers, you know, changed styles and sounds and so forth to fit whatever emotional expression that they were, uh, uh, you know, wanting to heighten in, uh, in early opera. Uh, but I think that, uh, uh, you know, that's excellent way to look at it, regardless of the style, because what you are really trying to get across is an emotional experience of some kind. You're telling a story, a story that you hope will move people. Yes, absolutely. And, and hearing that des description of, yes, someone, when there's someone you love or care about who is addicted or, or you know, they're, they're not there all the time. Right. And that's, and that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do you cope with losing the person before they're completely lost? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or how um, can you save them? Yeah. How do you cope with someone being physically present with you, but they're not actually fully present with you? I think, uh, uh, you know, that's sort of the paradox that many, many people live. They're just, we are, we are all, hopefully working to be a little more present. <laughs> well, I think you're right because I mean, you know, even if someone, like if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're preoccupied with thinking about something else, they're not yeah. all there either. Right. And, and that's a drag. Yeah. You know? But uh, anyway, well, moving on. Now to my <laughs> ears, your song Mama mm -hmm. sounds like a really a loving ode. Uh, and uh did, did you find that having a more country sound enhanced kind of that feeling of family, home, and the country? I'll be honest, like, I never thought of country once when I was, like, arranging, writing that instrumental melody line or any of the, anything. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but that's cool that it sounds country. I mean, I just... Um, I, I don't know. Again, it was just more of like, okay, does this feel right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of by what I go by is really feeling, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in the classical world and I remember some of the worst performances I ever heard of a pian classical pianist was someone who was clearly very tactically trained, but you would be like, okay, I didn't feel anything. So I don't really feel like they're feeling anything or playing with any feeling. And so like, you know, uh, 
I guess for me, when I'm arranging a song, uh, I just, if it makes me feel something, then I feel like it's passing the test. Like, okay, then, and then hopefully it'll make other people feel something too. You know, Mm -hmm. that's Mm kind of like my goal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, if you're true to yourself, okay, it's probably going to be uh, come across as real to others as well. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think people can can uh, sense insincerity. Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely, 100%, 100%. Before we can actually cognitively understand it, I think there's a sub, on a subconscious level, we can, we can feel when someone isn't being emotionally genuine, right? I agree. Yep. We pick up something and we're like, hmm, it just like we can feel we can feel the lie before our brains can actually recognize that it's mm-hmm. that it's not uh, a, an exact representation of a, a truth, right? So, yeah, I think for me, it's just um, I want to make sure that that's what my music is too. It's I want it to be authentic, and whatever sounds end up coming out, it just it needs to be it needs to be true, and it needs mm-hmm. to make thing. Well, and of course, I would I would add, you know, my impressions of your music is just one, <laughs> and it happens to be mine. But hey, it's my show, so you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it. <laughs> what it's about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I I my I <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I try to have big ears when I listen to people's music out of out of respect for your 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 creativity and, uh, and, you know, and, and certain things sound a certain way to me. I'm not always right about it, but I, I, uh, you know, I just kind of felt like it had that sort of a sound to it, uh, which takes me to another song that, uh, quite frankly, jump into the water sounds like a gospel song to me. Now you mentioned like a, a dirty, uh, what was it? A dirty boogie groove. I just want a dirty shuffle. Like dirty shuffle. Pretty shuffle, yeah. Yeah, but but you know they, they've often said that the, the gospel and the blues are two sides of the same coin. <laughs> so I heard "Jump in the Water" as having like a gospel kind of sound to it, and again, that's just me. Yeah, and 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 part of it was the use of the organ, which I assume oh, it sounded yeah. like a, it sounded like a Hammond B three. I'm not sure. Or at least a Hammond B3 tab on a on a keyboard. So I don't yeah. know what you were using, but well, we did have a real Hammond B3 for some of the album, but I think on this one, you know, okay. <laughs> it might have just been like it's some sort of keyboard for that studio. But. Okay, all right, but it's it's you kind of had that, but you know, so I you know I think one could draw the conclusion that the song was influenced about by a gospel song about baptism, about jumping in the water, but I don't necessarily think it's that. So what is your intention with jump into the water? What is going on there? Um, You know, I think uh, that gospel sound really came from just like the last minute idea that I wanted to put it in six, eight time, give it that dirty shuffle. I think at that time I'd been listening to a lot of Alabama, Bama shakes and I was like oh just love some of those you know some of that percussion some of those drum grooves I'm like I, I crave that you know that sound and um you know but to me that song did feel 
very spiritual to me just just how it sort of came out I again for that song I feel like I was catching a song and that um the method I was using was one of uh Jay Wagner's methods and he uh you know he calls it the uh translytic method which is he'll combine two poems from archaic languages and just sort of jumble them together and then it's our jobs as the songwriters to to sort of go draft by draft and just like translate it in into English and so you know by the first draft you have this sort of very strange phrase that sounds nothing doesn't make any sense but um it sounds very dreamlike you know and then you you continue to sort of like uh I guess like uh you know um be an alchemist and and you're trying to get to the gold you know and refine it refine it and so uh i think for this song by draft like five or six i was getting closer to something and so it didn't really feel like i was writing the song it really felt like the song like was slowly presenting itself and then you know, lines like she poured me a cup of tea and said peace was never born quietly. That's not really something like that's, you know, I feel like came from me. It really came from this translytic process. And um, I, I feel like this song ended up almost teaching me a lot of uh, spiritual lessons, um, teaching me a lot of uh, deeper lessons that I needed to, to really hear, be reminded of and, and, and relearn at that time. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, I feel like it was just one of those moments where like, uh, I just had to show up again and I didn't really feel like it, it came out of me. I feel like I, I was almost reaching for it and, and it, it presented itself um with this with this song um and uh yeah I guess that's what I have to say about that you know I feel yeah. like the song ended up being about just this this human need to to have a second chance we, we need a lot of second chances sure we do uh if we want to have a really fulfilling life so um yeah, I was like really surprised actually by the song when it was mm -hmm. finished. <laughs> like, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you, you're talking about. I don't know if you're familiar with a book entitled The Inner Game of Music. But no. it's, it's probably 30, 40 years old. But in the book, there's also a whole series. There's the inner game of tennis, the inner game of golf, the inner game of skiing, things like that. But the basic premise is, is that we have two selves. We have our conscious self and we have our subconscious self. Yes. And if we find a way to take our conscious self and kind of get it out of the way, then a lot of wonderful stuff comes out of our subconscious self. And it, to me, that's what sounds like what you're describing. It's like you're just the observer and it's writing for you. Yes. You know? 
Yeah, 100%. I feel like this process kind of reminds me of what um, Carl Jung said about your dreams, just, just that the dreams are exposing um, what's really happening in your subconscious. And, and, you know, in that, I think there's lessons to be learned. And, and so through this process, it was just, it was very dreamlike in, in the words and, and the process itself. And it felt like it allows for whatever is in your subconscious to sort of rise up. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of things that are dreamy, I want to talk about more than just okay. Because yeah. my first impression and listening to that song was I thought, oh, this is Rose version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the <laughs> Beatles. Because it has an almost sort of psychedelic kind of opening to it. And cool. then the vocal harmonies that you create are kind of like this really ethereal kind of dreamy, like dreamlike sort of sound, which I really liked. I thought it was very cool. So would you talk a bit more about more than just okay and what you were looking to express here? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I was a kid, like I would just always make up songs that that were more than just songs. They were to reassure me that um, to not be scared or not be afraid or um, or that I could do something. It, it was just kind of like my way of being my own uh, cheerleader. For I guess is the is what I'm thinking of. Um, and and so like this song was really birthed out of that idea of like, um, you know, what was my younger self always telling myself? And it was, that's where that, that idea is like, oh yeah, you're going to be more than just okay. Um, and the way I produced this, I wanted it to sound like we were really recording out in an open field in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, where I grew up, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't know if you know your bird sounds, or uh, you know bird calls very well oh, but yeah Jack, do you recognize what kind of bird that is I'm sorry I didn't I, I mean I wouldn't either if I hadn't grown up in Nebraska but that's the western meadowlark call oh. and so um you know that's that's the bird that I would wake up to almost every morning it would that's the sound I would wake up to is is that call and um you know and then I wanted it to feel very dreamlike. And so I tried to emulate Elliot Smith's style of the double vocal. And then um, I think what made it the most psychedelic though, again, I'm gonna like tip my hat off to Joshua Grange because he then ended up adding some incredible pedal steel and some string parts that really just elevated that the song and, and took it to a whole new place um, that it needed to go. Um, so yeah, I, I <laughs> that was a, that was a really fun one to put together. That was one of the last ones that um, we ended up finishing for the album. Mm -hmm. so. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it because of the uh, the effects and all those added instruments that you're talking about. Like I said, it made it a very, you know, dreamlike, out of body kind of experience, whatever that is, you know, kind of thing happening. So I congratulate yeah. you on 
your your uh, creation uh, or recreation of that experience. You know, it, I, I'm going to keep going out on a limb. You know, she's not yeah. the road. To yeah. me, reminded me of Bob Dylan's "Like a Rolling Stone." Oh, cool! A lot because of the organ work. Again, yeah. it reminded me of Al Cooper's uh, organ playing on on Bob Dylan's uh, "Like a Rolling Stone," but. Uh, so in other words, I, I guess I would say that it, uh, it it's almost like, you know, it's a song that if Bob Dylan had been a woman wronged by a man who perhaps uses her, but she can't stop loving me yeah. or loving him, excuse me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, to my ear, it's part rock, part country, but all kind of anger driven by sadness. Mm. Yeah. Am I, am I, am I, am I even close? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, all, you're close. You're, you're right on, on all these things. Cause you know, it's, it's your own interpretation of it. So that means it's completely valid, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so you, you touched on the organ of it on it and I just want to, you know, shout out uh, Eric Moon on that. Eric Moon is this great organ player out of Colorado and, and, uh, yeah, he played a lot of beautiful organ on this album and, and, and um, yeah, was so excited to have him be a part of it. Um, but She's Not the Road, uh, honestly, I, I, I was like touring around like, like with this uh, folk star out of Canada. But, you know, if, you, if you've known any folk stars, they're, they're not going to be touring in some sort of bus with you know, fancy bus with their name wrapped around it. You're going to be touring in a minivan. <laughs> so we were touring around uh, Canada to a couple different festivals in a, in a minivan. And um, um, he was, my friend Scott Cook was gracious enough to uh, let me write songs while he was driving. And um, so that's one of the songs that came out of that drive is just, is this song, uh, She's Not the Road. And um, I was honestly thinking, you know, like I'm I'm a songwriter in the, in the truest sense in that like, I'm not always writing songs with myself as a performer in mind. Like I'm writing songs with other performers in mind. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, I wrote this with Lucinda Williams in mind. Like, I just wanted her to sing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, but you know she's such a great writer she doesn't need somebody else's songs um we all know that um but anyway it was it was a fun it was fun to uh dream and do it as an exercise anyway so that's, that's just kind of how it was birthed you know in a in a minivan somewhere in uh the mountains in canada <laughs> okay well uh, and, that's, and that's beautiful country too yeah, and just yeah. just with hope that you know, you know, uh, could have Lucinda Williams' voice on there because I, I love her voice. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just, it is. Her voice is one of my favorites for sure. All right. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb again, and this time I'm probably going to saw it off behind me. So <laughs> get ready for the free fall. All the songs on the new album seem to be related to you in some way but i believe this is my personal feeling that irene is the most autobiographical 
Mm. It is about someone looking back on where they were when they were younger and encouragement to grow beyond what they were. Mm. Am yeah. I close? Am I close? Am I close? Uh, well, I'll say, um, man, I don't know where to start with this one, but I will, I will say this, that, that Irene is actually a family name. And my five greats grandmother was Irene. Her first name was Irene. And so that name has been passed down from generation to generation. And so, you know, um, my grandmother's middle name was Irene. And I, uh, you know, so I, I was really writing this song with my grandmother in mind, but then also with the idea in mind of like, just the cycles and the patterns that happen from generation to generation that continue to repeat themselves and, and patterns that I'd like to see ending with my own life. Um, and so really that's what Irene is about. It's, it's about ending certain, uh, you know, just, just, uh, patterns that have been passed down from generation to generation and, uh, um, learning to love yourself enough to leave, uh, the things that are familiar in, in order to grow into something that's more authentic and and truly loving of of who you are if that makes any sense so if i if i understand you correctly then irene is not a person as much as it is a number of people who happen to have that in common the name irene and it kind of follows a progression of 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 those people kind of and then ending up with you yeah, it's it, Irene is a symbol. It's a oh, it's, symbol okay. of, you know, just um, you know, just 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 woman after woman uh, in a family line, and uh, the choices we get to make as individuals. You know, we're born um, with certain genetics. We're born into certain environments, but then we have choices we can make, and and um, like for the characters in this song, the choices they have to make is, is to continue down the path of what's familiar or they can break away and follow the dreams that they know have been inside them since they were little girls. Okay. Evolved to their highest potential. Okay, that makes sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense now I think about it. But I especially I want you to talk about the video that was done for Irene because I understand that it has won several awards. And oh, yeah. I, I, I've even put for my listeners, I have uh, repeated the YouTube link for the video of Irene in my show notes so they can see it. It is a marvelous video. I'd like to hear you talk about it. Oh, yeah, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll begin with Ben Hess. He's uh, the director from Sly Fox Films and uh, out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And he's just an incredible talent. Uh, I was so grateful that he loved this song enough to, you know, collaborate with me and uh, create a vision and a storyline that really resonated with me and with the song. And uh yeah, it's just, 
what he did was, was just powerful and incredible. Um, well, the, Im- it, the imagery is certainly powerful. That's what I'll tell my listeners. They need to watch this yeah. video. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, and, and the cast and the crew, like, I, I just felt so honored to work with such immense talent and, and they were a lot of fun too. So, um, yeah, gosh, where do I even, <laughs> uh, expand there? Um, I don't know what, what's, what specifically should we talk about? about the Well, I guess, you know, a lot of what we, I mean, you, you, you kind of left the filmography in the hands of this Ben Hess. Yeah. Ben Hess. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet it's based on your song. And I, I guess I envisioned that he would have, uh, with, selected with your approval or input the particular images and how they were presented yes uh, yeah. and then whatever you put together has been recognized I can't even remember all the different awards that this video has already received and I know it's listed in your in your uh, uh, your your biographical information uh, but uh, let's you know, to save time, we just say that it's won some numerous awards and, and prestigious ones. So. Yeah, a couple out of California, I guess, and then one one in Colorado just recently. So yeah. it's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I just, I'd love for everybody to see it um, who hasn't seen it yet. I'm just really proud of the work that um, everyone created together and you know i'm also very proud of how my hometown came together and really helped us create this you know from the folks at the good hand theater in my hometown in kimball nebraska where they you know were so gracious and opening up for us and putting my name and the song on the marquee to the atkins family who allowed us to film at their incredible family farm um that's a historical landmark and all in and of itself and um yeah just or to my parents neighbors who were like yeah you can borrow a truck for the film (laughs) you know like that's not going to happen in a big city you're going to have to pay and you know if we had done this in nashville i know for a fact we'd have to pay for the locations we'd have to pay to rent the truck and you know we're we're filming in my hometown everybody's like yeah you know what do you need and and that's just really the the blessing of growing up in a small town is that yeah there is that community and and people are are, we're very supportive um and very kind and generous so yeah the 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 video ended up being beautiful and it would not have been possible without you know the crew and the cast and the director ben hess and my incredible the incredible community that is my hometown in kimball nebraska so. Well, you know, I'm sure they're all very proud of you. I mean, all of them, because uh, they had a part in it, but you're the one, the reason that it happened, because you wrote the song and, well, <laughs> you, you wrote the song without, without you, without the song, there wouldn't have been a video. There would have been something that everyone could have felt a part of. So there's probably a lot of pride there for for you. So congratulations on, on that. Oh, I, well, I appreciate yeah, thank you. Thanks, Craig. That's very kind yeah. of you. No, I, 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 I don't give uh, praise out lightly. 
I, I like to encourage people, but I, I really believe your videos is, is very much due the praise. I, uh, I almost hate to kind of switch gears, uh, yeah. but, um, and, and we're just about done. So, so, so hang in there, but uh, your song Railroad Weed oh, yeah. uh, brought to mind uh, a book I've read uh, because your Railroad Weed is, you know, it's a song about smoking pot by the, the railroad tracks, or at least that's what I heard in the song. <laughs> uh, but I'm wondering if there isn't something deeper here. And the, the deeper is related to a book that I read by uh, two uh, Princeton University economics, economic, economists. It's entitled Deaths of Despair in the Future of Capitalism. It was published in 2020. Oh yeah. The authors identify the rising death rate since the 1990s among white working class Americans mm. between the ages of 45 and 54 and deaths that are related to alcoholism, drug abuse, particularly opioid abuse and mm. suicide. The first two more or less being suicide in slow motion and, uh, and then actual suicide. It was railroad weed in any way uh, a window into the escapism necessary for some people to survive in a, a rural environment such as nowhere Nebraska or a nowhere Wisconsin or lots of other nowheres. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we all have our escapes that are necessary. Um, it's just a matter of do we do we live and we dwell in that place or is it just like a temporary thing, you know? And um, railroad weed, you know, while the it, it sounds like it's maybe just about smoking pot, it's there's there's a lot more to it, you know. Um, I grew up in in a little farming, it's a little farming town, uh, soon to be dried up oil town, and um, it was really. Uh, it was really hurting in the nineties and early two thousands, like, um, you know, because there was this changeover in, into more like, uh, corporate farming. And so I just, my dad was an organic farmer before it's cool to be organic. And, um, he was a conservationist. He planted trees and, um, he, it's all he knew his entire life. He had been running his family farm that had been passed down from generation to generation. But suddenly we found ourselves in these decades, not being able to make the same sort of living that, you know, our ancestors have made or generations before us had made. Um, it was, you know, small, small farms were struggling to stay alive, to stay operating. Um, a lot of, a lot of people had to file for bankruptcy. Some farmers, you know, it had to end up going corporate just so they could survive and get the money they need to continue to get, um, the equipment they needed to continue to run the farm. And, um, you know, my dad just held out. He was like, no, this is what I believe in. This is how I've always ran and operated. And he just, he just kept operating the only way he knew how. And so, really this song is about that struggle that I witnessed as a kid, just seeing mm -hmm. so much loss and, um, 
you know, these, these old dreams that were passed down from generation to generation to be connected to the land and to cultivate the land and it, and it sustain you, you know, slowly that was slipping from our hands to where it felt like, you know, just barely hanging on. Um, and so, yeah. And so in the chorus, right, there is that element of escapism to, Mm -hmm. to, to escape from this grim reality uh, that we as farmers can no longer sustain ourselves the way that our families have always understood was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's the that's the deeper meaning. There is, is yeah. a, just well. You know, Wisconsin is a very much an agricultural state, too. We've seen similar kinds of things here. Uh, uh, Failure of farms, dairy farms, uh, but even even on the industrial side, uh, uh, in a community about an hour from here, Janesville, Wisconsin, General Motors had a big plant that they just closed down, put like 3000 people out of work, you know. And and so, you know, that sort of thing has been going on all over the country. Uh, And uh, and that's one of the things that uh, uh, these authors in this book, it's a very enlightening book, uh, kind of talk about is uh, the uh, lives of despair that uh, or excuse me, the deaths of despair that many people are living because times have changed and the pandemic hasn't helped, you know, right. Uh, and, uh, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, aside from the new album, what have you been doing to keep mentally, musically active, uh, be, you know, during the shutdown because of COVID-19? Oh, <laughs> mentally and musically active. Yeah. Uh, question. So you don't go uh, nuts. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, uh, I think having a dog helps uh, (laughs) not losing your mind. I've got this big red and white fluffy Husky named Rudy. And um, he definitely has helped me to stay sane. Um, But yeah, just always, you know, staying mentally sane, staying musically sane. Like I've said before, like I can't uh, underestimate the power of just getting out in nature every day and connecting and, and just, you know, disconnecting from all technology and, and just taking in the smells of the ponderosa pine here and the sounds of like, uh, the Northern flicker and all the other birds up here in Montana, um, just is incredible. I would say like, as far as like projects that I'm working on, like, I'm very excited right now. I'm working on, you know, getting my music on TV and film and working with the scene agency to do so and that's really exciting territory um i'm writing um some new pop songs under a different alias so that's mm-hmm. a lot of fun um and i'm actually working on a um, whole new project that will involve me writing for strings so that's something i'm looking forward to i've always got like new musical projects on the horizon to keep me you know excited and engaged and and also connected to the people I love connecting with the most which are musicians I love I love um 
just being able to have that musical conversation and, you know, <laughs> I haven't played, I haven't played, um, one live streaming show. Cause I just, I can't wrap my head around just that terrible audio quality. I don't care like what kind of equipment you have. You're going to, you're going to squish it and you're going to compress it and it's going to sound, I don't know. I just can't bring myself to it. I haven't. So, you know, I haven't played live music or, uh, music in general for a very, very long time. So, you know, one of the things I'm excited to finally do to continue to keep my sanity is I'm actually going to start playing shows. Good. shows. It's going to be great. We're doing the, you know, the record release show um, coming up here in September. That's going to be a lot of fun to play with musicians, you know, for the first time in over a year. I just, I, I, I feel so alive when I'm doing that, you know, getting to have that conversation. So looking forward to that, that's definitely going to help me stay um, sane during these times. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Not only am I here, glad to hear that you've got all those things going on, you've also answered about three of my questions I was going to ask you. Oh, Isn't that awesome? Great. But, okay. but I did want to ask you, when you're out there walking around in the woods, and, yeah. and you get an idea. Do you write it down in a sketchbook? Do you keep a, keep a sketchbook of ideas that you draw upon later for songs? Yeah, I, uh, I like always try to take a notebook and a, a, a really nice pen with me everywhere I go. But honestly, if it's a, a musical idea, um, I upgraded my phone so that I just so that I could have more memory space for all the voice recordings I have <laughs> people on my phone. I have hundreds of ideas just like on my phone. And, and, you know, that's also helpful for co-writes. I do a lot of co-writing in Nashville and it's mm -hmm. like, if I can just come into that right with ideas and melodic ideas that are already on my phone, like I feel like I'm already able to help and, and contribute in some way, you know? So, um, yeah, thank Thank God for voice recording. If only Beethoven had had an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> Inconvenient times where you go like in, in the shower, it's like, well, at least like you can like pause things, get your phone out and sing whatever sure. you have. And, and then it's not lost, you know, because I, I have no idea, you know, when I was a kid, I tried to do it with cassette tape and stuff, but it just like... Right. <laughs> wasn't always immediately available you know sure. it wasn't wireless all, all the time so yeah. Um, yeah that's that's helpful well it's gonna I, I have two more questions to ask you all right uh, one is what is your most memorable musical experience Oh, wow. Okay, I know that's, that's worse than asking you who your influences were as a singer. <laughs> but try and think of the first one that comes to mind. Most memorable. Oh, and it doesn't necessarily God. have to be a good one, you know. Um, is this like me, me partaking, listening to music or me making the music? No, Which I, I'd say you making music. Me making the music. Yes. The most memorable. That's a lot of M's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love alliteration. How can I answer it in alliteration? Oh, 
that might be a little more challenging. I can't even come up with, I got to come up with the memory first before the alliteration. Okay. Um, I'd say, oh man, that's really hard. Um, My students used to say that too. And I would ask yeah. hard questions. It's just like the, <laughs> you ask hard questions. That's good. It's good to ask some challenging questions. I appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, it, I, it's really it's really hard to say. But um, I I'd, I'd say one of the most memorable is just um, working in. Patrick Hertzfeld's studio down in um, just outside of Austin at Signal Hill recording. Just just uh, the feeling of being able to track live with a, a full band and and getting that take we wanted, you know. Um, there's something so special about everything happening live in that room at once as opposed to like what you might find with a lot of pop, which is just like you know, layering track by track and none of it's really, it's usually not live. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, you know, one of my most memorable experiences is just all that whole experience combined. It's like being in the studio, being with the band, um, you know, eating great food and just like knocking off the songs and getting those takes we needed. And um, sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's not very specific. That's because well, I, I think I, you know, because, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, we play music, right? We play, play is the key word. We don't suffer. We don't toil. We don't slave. We don't work music. We play music. So yeah. anytime we get together with others, we play is a wonderful, pleasurable experience because you know, it, it's, it, it's, it, there's so much humanness to that, mm -hmm. to that uh, uh, cooperative creation of art that, yeah. uh, that it's hard to put words to. And people who are musical lay people, I don't think fully understand. I mean, it's like my wife and I, you know, during the pandemic, we, we play together. She plays piano, I play trumpet and, and, and we just, you know, we have a, uh, a lot of fun playing together and we're gonna play this Sunday. We decided that we were going to uh, do a little outdoor performance just for our neighbors here in our condo community. Just I love because, that. yeah, because we both hunger wanting to perform because I've played one gig and it was on Memorial Day since March of 2020. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I feel. It. it felt so good to get together with other people and play. So I know of what you. Oh, yeah. Well, if y'all were my neighbors, I'd totally stop by. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little bit of a commute, though. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, y'all are you know still north, but a little further east. So. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I'll look for you. You know, if you know you ever come to Wisconsin to perform, because there's yeah. some. There's some really nice venues here yeah. uh, that your music would fit in very nicely. So is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience? Oh, man, I just want to thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Craig. What a cool thing that was, you know, birthed and born out of the pandemic, right? This will be well, 40 years.
part? Mm -hmm. Yep, you're episode number 40 when it comes up. Yeah, so I just, I love that, that that's, you know, what a beautiful thing to, to come out of such a trying time for all of us. And sure. especially as music makers, you know, it's been rough, but I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And I just want to thank you for, yeah, thank you for having me on. I really well, enjoyed it. Well, ditto. I've enjoyed, I enjoyed it uh, immensely myself. And thank you for taking time to talk with me today and all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Well, thanks. And thanks for listening to me ramble. I hope some of it made sense. <laughs> all right. You have a great rest of your day. My discovery composer of the week is the English composer Richard Miko. Born in 1590, died in 1661. His family came from northern France sometime before 1509. In 1608, Miko was appointed resident musician at Thorndon Hall, Essex. His wages, 10 pounds a year, were above average for the period, suggesting that he was already regarded as a musician of promise. Although his principal responsibility seems to have been the musical education of the family's children, he was probably expected to compose for the household's instruments. An inventory made on his arrival lists five viols, a lute, a virginal, and organ, together with printed music, mainly by William Byrd, and manuscript part books. At this time, Byrd lived nearby and was closely associated with the family. Another inventory during this period Miko converted to Catholicism, his employer's faith. This presumably had some significance in his appointment in 1630 as organist to Queen Henrietta Maria, a post he held until the Queen's flight to Holland in 1642. After this, evidence of his life is sporadic, but he was certainly living in London in 1651 and receiving a life annuity of 20 pounds in 1658. He was buried at St. Paul's Covent Garden on 10 April 1661. It is likely that Miko's extent, extant music dates from before 1630. His music is conservative for its time, being stylistically closest to that of Alfonso Ferrabasco and Thomas Tompkins. He wrote nothing except fantasias and pavans and seems to have had no interest in the lighter dance forms. He certainly made no forays into the fantasia suite, which was rapidly growing in popularity. Triple time meters are notably absent and homophonic textures appear infrequently. Of the stylistic fingerprints that can be seen throughout his output, the most obvious is a predilection for augmented triads and less widespread, but nevertheless noticeable, are leaps onto the seventh of a chord. Possibly the most interesting of his compositions is the five-part La Trolle, the title of which is derived from the text of the second part of Monteverdi's madrigal, Vetene pure, crudel conquiel pace 
Latral, Sangue le Morti. It is divided into two sections, the first an arrangement of the second part of the madrigal, and the second is Miko's response in which he mirrors Monteverdi's descending chromaticism with an equivalent ascending passage. Miko's music was widely circulated in his lifetime, suggesting that he was a highly regarded composer. At its best, it displays deep feeling coupled with lyrical freshness. Both Simpson in 1665 and Roger North in 1728 ranked him among leading composers of consort music. The All Music Guide lists eight of Miko's compositions as having been recorded. Aside from the All Music Guide listings, I would like to point out an excellent album consisting in its entirety of Miko's music by the Swiss viol quartet Concerto di Viole, entitled Pavans and Fancies for the Viols. In my show notes is also a YouTube link to a performance of Miko's Fantasia Number no. 6, performed by the Little Light Consort. That wraps episode number 40. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Raleigh Durham, North Carolina based Miles Travitz who has made the leap from electronic dance music composer to singer-songwriter. Upcoming interviews will include my discussion with Los Angeles studio musician and baritone saxophonist Terry Landry, New York City-based folk Americana singer-songwriter Diana Jones, Hartford, Connecticut-based jazz pianist, composer, arranger, and band leader Jen Allen, and veteran of the Broadway Theater Pit Orchestras, several New York City jazz big bands, and leader of her own jazz group, Bonegasm, bass trombonist Jennifer Wharton. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.